Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. If you've paid attention to painting in the last few years, you're definitely familiar with Wendy White. Wendy is from Deep River, Connecticut and went to school at Savannah College of Art and Design in Rutgers where she got her MFA in painting. She's had 15 solo shows since 2010, too many group shows to list. She's been reviewed in the New York Times, Art Forum, Interview, Time Out, Forbes, Hyperallergic, Art in America, just about any publication you could think of. She's done numerous other projects like her Rediditas shop at Rawson Projects, artwork for the Bowery Mural Project, shirts for Woodpoint and Kingsland, and a ton of other stuff. She keeps busy. Wendy's known for making abstract paintings that incorporate imagery from her surroundings in New York City and a fresh, inventive approach. I met up with her at the Eric Firestone Loft in Soho, where she had a solo show of her newest work up. We talked about art, the city, board culture, and the value of being bored. Here's our conversation. After we were saying, this space is pretty incredible. Yeah, it's like old Soho rad. Um, it's a dream. It's like the kind of space that I never got to experience as an artist in New York, but I just heard about like a legend type space, you know? Yeah. Did you, when you first, when did you first come to uh, New York as an artist? Well, you went to school in Rutgers, right? I, well, I went to undergrad in Georgia and then I moved up here for a year after undergrad, but it just didn't really work out. Um, I ended up moving back down south for a while. And then I came back for the second time in 2000. Mm-hmm and went to grad school at Rutgers and lived in New Jersey for a while. Then Did you come to, to the city a lot when you were yeah. in school? Yeah, no, I came every week. I saw every single show. So was this, were you in going to see shows like this? Because I remember when I first started mm-hmm. coming, I saw some Soho shows no, before they moved. Um, well, I mean, I think David's Werner was still on Green Street. Yeah. I remember going to that space. I remember seeing a really good Luke Toyman show there. Um, but it, Chelsea was already happening. People yeah. had already moved there. So that was, I think I spent a lot more time in Chelsea than anywhere. Yeah, but this has that, that old, so, well, even this Werner space, that was a cool space. Yeah, it had it. It definitely had it. But this has that lofty thing, you yeah. know, it's like you really have, you have to walk up four flights of stairs. You have to earn it. Yeah. And then when you get up here, you think, what's this place going to be? And when you turn the corner, it just has this, like it's just rustic enough the reveal yeah yeah like it's not a white cube it's not this like pretentious space it's a space that feels like something happened in here it didn't yeah. just get thrown up like drywall thrown up yesterday and poured concrete floors yeah i've just you know i've had shows like that mm-hmm. and um i was kind of interested in um sort of being in, uh, working in a space or installing in a space that already had some character, I guess, or some sort of um, history. Yeah. Well, a lot of your work is about, or at least I think it's about, you know, your surroundings and you're inspired by the city or what you're seeing, whether yeah. it's signage or graffiti. Totally. Or and New York's been a big inspiration for a while, so. Yeah. Yeah. So what? how do you feel about the fact that, I mean, we talked about this a little bit like the changing city too because I remember when I first came the Lower East Side there were a couple galleries still there from 
the 80s, you know, from back then. And um, they had, it was made way smaller than this, but it had that kind of like the vibe of how that looks in the corner, you know, that everything's just yeah. been painted over white <laughs> like 400 times. Yes. <laughs> and um, totally. there's that character in that. And uh, now the Lower East Side, it's weird because it went to Chelsea. Yeah. And it's, then it it's by way of Chelsea. moved around so, and it came yes. back down. So it's like basically people who wanted Chelsea, well, I shouldn't say this, but it seems like galleries who sort of wanted Chelsea spaces but mm-hmm. didn't want to pay for them. Right. So they did like Chelsea on the Lower East Side. Mini, mini-sized mini Yeah, Chelsea. like mini little white cubes. But, um, and, but then there are still the scrappy, I think there's still some scrappy spaces on, on the LES that, yeah. are, that are kind of reminiscent of those old spaces. But the landscape is changing so much of the the visual landscape of the city. Totally, yeah. I mean, I try not to be. Um, I don't know. I have this this sort of. I don't know. I feel like it's it's weird for New Yorkers to get pissed about New York changing. Yeah. Because it's not like it looks like it looked in the 1800s or turn of the, any turn of the century or even the 1950s. I mean, there were periods of massive amounts of signage yeah. in like the late eight or 19th century. This is nothing compared to what the signage that used to be stacked up vertically, horizontally, mm-hmm. everywhere. Um, the signage that used to be written on the sides of brick buildings, like hand-painted signage. Yeah. Um, Which are really cool when you see those. They're by amazing the way. when you uncover like, them and they're real. But yeah. you don't now. You don't know if it's like Urban Outfitters or something. Right. Or like Hollister just made a crusty old sign yeah, to yeah. look old. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think people are overly nostalgic for the New York that they experienced first. Yeah. And the whole spirit of New York is just like ruthless change. So right. why get all like sad about CBGBs? Because it kind of sucked at the end anyway. So yeah, then maybe there'll be some new thing. It was time for him to change. It was time. Well, I'm not nostalgic about when I first moved to Brooklyn. It was you know sketchy. Well, I mean, it wasn't that bad, but you know, right? It wasn't as. Like, oh, I miss the crime. Yeah, yeah. I miss the <laughs> grit, and it's like not not really. But I do miss the rents. Yeah. Not that I pay rent, but you know. And just like, the access to spaces and to like, now people are just on it. They all the, all the landlords know. Yeah. What they can get, and it it does kind of suck, but it's not. It's really not their fault. It's people can pay it, so. Right. That's it's their fucking fault. Yeah. <laughs> so when you when you moved to this, to Brooklyn first, right? Mm-hmm. Did you work where you lived, or did you have a separate studio? When I lived in Brooklyn, yeah. I had a separate studio. Yeah, I had a tiny little apartment, so I had a separate studio. My first studio was this corner of a warehouse in Maspeth, Queens. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a studio that I got through, it was Steve DiBenedetto's old studio, uh-huh. and a couple other people had had it who were Rutgers students, because um, he was teaching there at the time and sort of got the word out that he was renting his space. But it was um, this factory that made, um, they rented out moving boxes, like moving crates. Uh-huh. So they just had stacks and stacks of those like plastic containers with the flaps on top. Yeah. And um, so I didn't actually have any wall. I had two wall, like a corner that I worked in, but there were no dividing walls. So there were just people moving those boxes <laughs> around all day. And I was just there with my dog, like painting in the corner. And I was doing airbrush and stuff. It was uh-huh. really weird. What kind of work were you making back then? Um, like I was making really big paintings, but um, a lot of I, I think I was still using some spray paint, mm-hmm. and they were like gestural abstract paintings with a lot of white space. That mm-hmm. they were about like bleeding, the painting bleeding back onto the wall. Mm-hmm. 
So I was making big stuff, but it was it's really different from what I'm making now. And Maspeth, that's just, I mean, it's a little out there, right? <laughs> yeah, it was like over that, I don't even know what that little bridge is called. Oh, on Metropolitan um, Avenue? I don't know. I, I forget. I like think Review I, Drive or something. Okay. You went down the, like this dirt road and it was way in the back. It was really weird. Yeah. Really weird spot. But it worked. It was it was fine. And I, th- I think I made, um, I'm pretty sure I made the work for my first New York show in that space. Um, yeah. I'm and where was sure it? Where was your first show? It was at this gallery called Sixty Seven mm-hmm. on Twenty Seventh Street on the second floor. It's not there anymore. That's cool. It was a good show. Like it was. I mean, you... <laughs> I don't know if it was a good show. It was. Um, it was a weird show. It was my debut show, and it was kind of a. It was kind of badass, and that it was just four big, huge paintings. Like mm-hmm. I never had any concept of what uh, of any market stuff. So. Yeah. Um, which is good. So I kind of came on the scene like, oh, I'll just make these like 16-foot paintings and <laughs> see what happens, and, which is ridiculous. Um, but it was sort of a good, I don't know, I'm sort of proud of coming out of the scene that way instead of like with some little sellable tchotchkes or yeah. some, you know, little row of paintings that look the same. And, um, and then there were four sculptures and like kind of in the middle of the room was a small gallery mm-hmm. just these weird assemblage things and what year was do you remember what year 2000 that was? Do I remember yeah it hasn't been that long um <laughs> 2006 uh-huh. I think was the first show so that's like getting to yeah, you know because if you ago. if you if you kind of were doing that in the early 2000s or just 2000 you know around that time you could probably sell gigantic because things were selling Maybe. so much you know it's different yeah. like market things get cyclical and you know, but it's cool that you weren't. You there was nothing going on. Yeah, there was nothing going on then, and it was before the crash. So right. it was just like, I mean, if there was something going on, I I didn't know about it. Yeah, yeah. So it was just kind of cool, you know. It's complete freedom. Mm-hmm. I never cared about that stuff much anyway. Yeah, and you like working big because you've made. I mean, some of the pieces in this are pretty big. Yeah, not I do. huge. No, but big I mean, is they're big. Big is my scale. Big painting is my. That's my comfort zone, and that's where I think things really happen mm-hmm. like people moving in front of paintings is sort of my and the history of New York painting is I mean it's this if you can't make big paintings in New York where can you make them yeah. it's like it's our it's our legacy in yeah. a way you know <laughs> and that's there's a certain bravado in it too which is kind of cool and well, a, yeah, and I mean, a that's human the, scale to it you know there is there's a certain bravado in it I guess that you know you can People can you could complain about that too, art historically speaking. That there's a lot of um, sort of pompous, masculine um, posturing yeah. in big painting, mm-hmm. you know, especially in the '80s. But as a female painter, I sort of feel like that's ripe for All overturning yeah. or commenting on or um, working within or adding to or whatever you want to call it. So I've always felt like there's something there's some unfinished territory I think for women painters yeah. to work large yeah. and it's weird because you see a lot of painters women working large um, in the last like 10 years mm-hmm. so I think there's something to that yeah and it, it's funny because when I first you know came to the city and started working you know I came right out of school and I was making big paint I just right. loved working big yeah I remember large that. scale and then I showed nothing, but I remember my de- my first dealer saying, can't you make a couple small paintings? <laughs> yeah. 
I to take the art fairs. Yeah, totally. And I was like, no, I just don't do it. You're like, why? I, yeah, I don't do it. And I, I just never. And You're I like, give work. me a really good conceptual reason why. Right. <laughs> and they're like, oh. Because uh, oh. I could sell the work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, you know, it was something that I just didn't do. I, when I worked small, it was work on paper. You know, right. and I felt like that was for yeah. small stuff and paint was for big. And then only until pretty recent that I start making small work again and really enjoyed the challenge of it because mm-hmm. it's really hard to make a good it is very really small painting I mean that's I mean I I um I rationalize a lot of my big paint I mean I did say it was my comfort zone and I'm I'm being honest and that I, I fight with those small paintings mm-hmm. they're really hard yeah um they're a bitch to stretch too I mm-hmm. hate stretching small, small ones. ones big ones are so easy it's just yeah. like boom it's done yeah. a small one it's like warpy and weird and buckled and yeah I don't know yeah they get in I I started doing that too when I would make these small ones and stretching them it was so, so tedious yeah so I would just work on panel and just stretch the panel and make yeah, it so much great. easier yeah just stretch canvas over panel yeah but it you know it's it's a totally different you wouldn't think making things smaller would be so much more difficult but yeah, well, it's like it's condensing. I had to kind of learn how how small paintings fit into my language. Like, mm-hmm. what was I doing in the field of a large painting, and what was I then doing in a small painting? Because I didn't want to make small paintings that were like my big paintings, yeah. just condensed. It never made sense to me. So I would end up kind of singling out, which I think a lot of people do, singling out an image mm-hmm. or a, um, a piece of text or a gesture, and then that would you know, start to, I don't feel like it could be expressed as a small painting. Yeah. Because um, I think the tendency is like just to make small ones. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like the big ones. Well, I think in these days too, it's, you know, a lot of people are having a harder time getting bigger space yeah, to work yeah. in. Yeah, spaces, yeah. That's definitely, that's the biggest challenge. And I mean, I started working modular with multiple canvas paintings for that reason. Mm -hmm. Because I wanted to be able to lift them myself. I wanted to be able to move things. I wanted to be able to ship them. Um, I hate unstretching and restretching things. Oh, yeah, it's the worst. It's the worst. I don't like redoing in general. Yeah. That's the way all artists are like that, right? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Some people, like, can pull a painting out that they started five years ago and that's then true rework do, it i cannot do that i don't get that at all next i'm always like next no thing. next like how can you i don't know I, I don't i don't understand that yeah maybe that's why i do understand the new york thing about ruthlessly moving forward yeah it's like no all new yeah. all new all the time my biggest fear is like you know someone saying like oh there's something happened to this piece and you have to redo it. <laughs> You're like, like don't I never send wanna, it back to me. <laughs> I can't like go back and redo this painting. You're like I didn't do that. Yeah, it's not mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, when did you start working on this show? I started. I mean, I had some of the work that is here um, finished or nearly finished when um, Eric approached me to do the show. And then uh, I think I spent about six weeks or so um, figuring out the last kind of pieces and then the sculptures came as a result of seeing the space and um, really wanting something that interacted more with the space. I mean, I I didn't want it to just be a painting show. It didn't feel like the kind of space that um, paintings alone could fill in a sort of experiential way yeah and uh i felt like it was begging for something three-dimensional so the sculptures really were kind of born out of 
just being in space and seeing it and kind of visualizing, um, literally visualizing these wall decals that I've used, sort of lifting off the wall and becoming, um, taking out on physical space. Yeah. And um, with the stuff that you're adding to the canvas, um, is that kind of in your mind when you're first starting the painting? It's like this is going to be a net painting. I'm yes. Going to do these colors yes. For it. It, it's not always with when I add things on the painting. Sometimes like framing elements. Mm -hmm. Typically the painting happens first and then um, I don't know what kind of frame it's going to get or what right. sort of um, addition it's going to have. But these I knew, I mean the ropes, I, I knew that I wanted to make these rope paintings. Um, I didn't know that the rope would uh, become this graphic element that it would take on the, this kind of knotted netted grid mm -hmm. um, that sort of came out of um, what initially was a tangle in this main painting Santa Cruz the biggest painting in the show um, I knew that I wanted it to have this knot this rainbow knotting of net yeah. and then after working with this painting for a while I decided to make a series of smaller or maybe like mid-sized paintings where the net took on this graphic sort of a commenting on um, a linear element in painting mm -hmm. you know so it's like this it's commenting on the grid in painting it's sort of um, subverting the grid a little bit or a sort of a tongue-in-cheek version of the grid yeah. um, and then also wanted to kind of play with how paintings work visually how you have this sort of diffused thing at like foreground and background diffusion with something very sharp and clean and graphic on top yeah so it just became i don't know it just kind of took on these other forms and in order to balance out that crazy tangle i yeah. needed there to be order and um yeah so there was a little bit of an intuitive sort of mark making that um, the rope just kind of took took on the place of mark making in in painting yeah. in a way. And the, the graphics on the wall too create a layer behind the painting in a way. Yeah. So it's yeah, yeah, so yeah. layered. It's so yeah. So there's like I wanted there to be iterations of not only the the content. I mean, I didn't want to hitch over the head with the content of the show, mm -hmm. but I wanted there to be images that were reiterated in different forms. Yeah. So. The decals lift off the wall and are seen in the sculptures, but then they're also seen kind of sublimated or almost printed mm -hmm. through stenciling into the painting. So there are like these different versions of a graphic. So it's really about like symbology and symbols themselves and how they take on different meaning depending on um, context and yeah. edges. Yeah, and then there's clearly you have um, an interest in sports or that comes yeah, into your painting. So. And this, uh, you know, I'm seeing like snowboarding, skateboarding, and then there's also, there's so many people that I talk to from not, maybe not our immediate generation, but you know, people of a certain generation who skateboarding, graphics, mm -hmm. posters, stickers, all that stuff yeah. is a big influence. It's totally like, it's life. a Gen X thing that I think I, I grew up in the 90s with this, this uh, relationship to skateboard culture as... I don't know, I saw it as, I, I liked that it's some slightly derelict, um, edgy, but then also it was like kind of perma-smile, like roll a joint, hang out, mm -hmm. all-inclusive. Um, but then there's this whole territorial side in board culture that's just so fascinating how it's, uh, it, it just has these different meanings depending on, um, decades or moments in time or historical events yeah 
Um, and it's wrapped up in visual culture too, totally. because all the decks have boards. You look at someone like Gons, who's a painter. Yeah. And he's all, there was a lot of people who were very visual. Oh yeah. Who were in that culture. Totally. And then not only did, you know, the clothing and the, the skateboards, or I mean, snowboards too in a way, but when and specifically in skateboarding, it also the the visual culture of skateboarding projected itself on the concrete. Like you were either waxing corners or you were tagging. Yeah, there's stuff. this whole fetishistic side to taking care of the gear. Yeah. But then it's also completely like whatever, fuck it. Just, you know, let let your stuff get all fucked up. Right. And you don't want that brand new board. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Because it's you would too take posery. A new one and you would yeah, start to you totally, grind yes, it on purpose. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Like fake grind the, mm-hmm. your board. Um, but yeah, there's the all of those sort of um, rituals of waxing, um, th- like putting the grip tape on your board, um, obsessively changing trucks and and bearings and like you know buying that stuff it's just i like the whole idea of this really simple gear that you have to like the one board you have to take care of it's also transportation like in skateboarding it's rad because it is simple transportation Mm -hmm. and then in surfing it's like this shaped thing this shaped painted graphic thing that you connect to your body by a leash by a rope so that also kind of factored into my wanting to use ropes, not just for the nautical or the fishing or for the commenting on painting, but also this idea of a literal connection between a shaped object mm-hmm. and the human form via some sort of um, material, rope yeah. material or um, skateboard or a surfboard leash or whatever. Do you geek out on materials in the studio too? Do I what? Do you geek out on materials? Do I geek out? Yeah, I totally geek out. But I also have this sort of DIY thing where I don't like the fanciest thing. And if I do, if I do buy like the the highest end thing to make something, I have to balance it with the low end. Yeah. So I think, and I also think that comes out of that um, sort of Gen X culture of never wanting to sell out. Right. Keeping which it, God, I wish we could get real. back to that. Like people yeah. sell out so fucking fast now. It's oh, just like you, it's almost like. They, it's it's seen as a good thing. Weirdly. Well, if people brag up, about it. If you grow up on, let's say, like Green Day, as opposed to Minor Threat, right? It makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or Jimmy Eat World, or whatever the, you know what I mean? There's, yeah, no, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. You're you kind of fed the cultural relationship that you end up having with. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And it, there was a point when I was in college, I remember where it got annoying. Whereas around all these straight edge kids, and it just seemed like it was so heavy handed. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I wanted to kind of not be that extreme well it was all about looking for like the i mean it was shopping at the thrift store so you had the t-shirt that nobody else had yeah and um or manipulating some sort of vintage clothes i mean that's what my whole like 90s undergrad early 90s life was like it was just it wasn't just me like i just lived out of thrift stores <laughs> like i didn't ever went yeah. to stores it was to buy so clothes. well i was in the south too and thrift stores in florida were so fucking amazing yeah. it was like piles of Haywood Wakefield furniture because the whole Space Coast boomed in the 50s and all these families moved there and put all this rad mid-century stuff in their houses and then they dumped it all in the 90s so you could find I I had for a while like the shittiest apartments with the best mid-century modern furniture and plates too like I don't know if you oh or at least in Pennsylvania there's some really good ones too I still go to the ones in Pennsylvania and you would find like Franciscan or that like that modern kind of like oh you can yeah it's it's even tough to find it in in those places now yeah in rural 
thrift shops. It's the really, internet destroyed it because everyone knows what they it. have Fucking now. eBay destroyed it. They did. Yeah, because yeah. you can just and that was that was part of the show too. It's funny that you bring that up because the whole idea of accumulating or collecting. Because um, I was thinking about the first wave of Lisa Frank mm-hmm. with the show. And oh yeah. Sort of the '80s Lisa Frank sticker books with the rainbows and clouds and hearts and um, and just the how generic those symbols were, but how they felt so. She had, I don't know. There's just this this feeling that you had to have every version of the rainbow sticker, mm-hmm. and we saved them in these sticker albums. And then I think there was a second wave of Lisa Frank that I missed in the '90s. But yeah, now if you want a sticker collection, you just go on eBay and buy it all at once, yeah. and like it, the box just comes and you have everything. So, I mean, I talked about not being nostalgic, and then now I'm being totally nostalgic. <laughs> but I'm selectively nostalgic. It's, but it's I, okay. I think that um, the desire and longing were a big part of growing up in the 80s and 90s mm-hmm. you wanted like I wanted the soundtrack for if you wanted the soundtrack for a movie and you couldn't find it you didn't you never heard it yeah I mean you've heard little pieces of it in the you just didn't get stuff so yeah I don't know this is a little bit about about not being able to get stuff and what that looks like yeah, I guess. I think I, I want to believe that it can still you can still find things though. But you, you have know. to f- you can still find things, but you have to force the, the 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 discovery. Yeah. And you're and now it's like you're cognitive of of that it's happening. Oh, yeah. I'm digging through stuff now. Right. I don't know. It just used to. I don't know. It was part of life. Well, I remember going to the stores. I, I one time I got an old watch, mm-hmm. and I didn't know. I thought it might be nice or cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. I thought this would be special. You have a feeling special. about it, right? Like, yeah, like this. But there was no way to Google it or find out. You know what I mean? So How I long did you have it? Did, I held was it on nice? to it for a really long time. It ended up being pretty, a pretty cool watch. Like it was from the fifties. So what does that mean to just have the feeling that something is nice, yeah. versus knowing that it's nice and sort of owning that emotion emotional connection to something when you can't prove it yeah but you just feel it so there's that's profound i think it's like that's a real that's a real emotional connection and i believe in emotional connections to things like i'm i'm not somebody who doesn't want to buy new things yeah i like things i'm obsessive about gear and um you know I go to Models just to like see what they have, yeah. <laughs> what, what new knee pads they have and stuff, or like right, right. you know, snorkels. Yeah. Just weird like that. But yeah, I don't know. It used to it just used to be the hunt. The hunt is gone. Yeah. Well, there's a parallel to that. Not to get too complainy because I do this a lot. But, <laughs> um, I think the parallel to that with uh, our mind and imagination is now there's so much creative content out there. There's so much stuff available all the time. That I think if you're growing up around that, your imagination isn't as um, active because yeah. no, you're not true. bored. You don't have time to just daydream or how, how can it be? And boredom is almost impossible to reach. Like, and we both have kids, so we know yeah. that I know. And the quandary you, of like, I need for my kid to be bored once in a while, or else he's right. going to be creatively. And you like, find yourself saying this, but you say the same stuff your parents said to him. Oh, I know. Like, you don't even know. I had like one Lego set. And, you know, <laughs> meanwhile, there's like a pile sky high. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's and so I guess we can't even be nostalgic about that. But there is something 
that I do believe that the internet has ruined our lives in a lot of ways. And as artists, it's harder and harder to, you see people trying to get deeper and deeper cuts, like on purpose. Yeah. They're like, how obscure can I make this reference? Right. And that's why, I don't know, I just don't, I think in order to be, not that the objective is to be obscure, but in order to be original, you have to get deep, deep into your psyche yeah. and into your DNA, which is built up by stuff you saw or didn't see when you were a kid and in your formative years. And then um, you have to be able to access it somehow and you have to trust it. And that's what you have to make. Because if you're, if you're not reflecting your own little piece, I mean, it's just my feeling. If you're not reflecting your own little tiny little niche um, accumulated DNA, yeah. then you, what do you, what's the point? Yeah, it's just empty chatter. Well, yeah. I'm sorry to report that we don't have enough time to do that anymore. Sorry. <laughs> you have to tweet a certain amount of times yeah, a day. Yeah, no, so. yeah, I know. And it doesn't fit in 140 characters, exactly. so it's like, yeah. But boredom, boredom is important. I mean, I don't even get, I, the only way I can get ideas is to, is to like lie down and close my, lie on my back and close my eyes. Yeah. And just like, you know how much time I spent looking, I mean, you're from Pittsburgh, right? Yeah. How much time did you spend looking at fucking trees no for real like yeah. hours all right all the time yeah hours and yeah. i mean it just that's all i did was like lie in the yard and look at trees we had a little creek like three blocks away we wow. call them cricks that, you're lucky yeah we had a crick and uh we would go down there these guys had a crick yeah down, right down like three blocks down <laughs> from where we lived we had a crick and uh we would just go down there and just throw rocks just sit there all yes. day and throw rocks <laughs> in the creek <laughs> But, you know, there's something about that. There is something about that. And it sounds really stupid. It's like saying, I, you know, I walked to school in the snow barefoot, I guess. Is but the, the sad thing, thing is, if, the sad thing is if you try to provide that for a kid now, or like you yeah. want to do that now, you're consciously going off the grid. Or you're being like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. not like I'm just going out camping yeah, or something. I guess that's it's what like, we're talking about, about the discovery thing, too. Like, you, you're thinking, like, maybe I'll find something at the thrift store. Or yeah. Like, yeah, maybe let's go off the grid, guys. Yeah. Yeah, I'm let's... not going to post anything for three <laughs> days. <laughs> When's the last time I posted? Should I post again? Yeah. Can I do another selfie? Has it been long enough? Yeah, it's stupid. There's a lot of there's it's a lot of stupid, stupid, measured stuff that we're doing in life. And I hope it's just a transition moment. And that we will, the pendulum will swing back toward the middle a little yeah, bit. And I think so. we won't, um, because I like sharing. I think sharing is good. I'm interested in, I'm interested in, in like, liking things mm -hmm. and admitting what you like. I've always been into that, even before it was. Um, Forced down our throat. Yeah, <laughs> or like something that you could broadcast. Right. Um, and that's why I like stickers. I like that you could like put your affiliations on your stuff. Yeah. You could say like, you know, this GNS sticker, um, this Santa Cruz sticker. Yeah. I Not like that one. Too. This one. Like hmm? buttons. Like buttons. Pins were big. Yeah, buttons were big. And you know, it's there's something to that that I think is definitely homogenized. Yeah. I don't know. What are you gonna do? Times have changed. <laughs> So, well, speaking of music, uh -huh. what were you into as a kid growing up? 
music. Did, were you in this music? Was it in the house or? No, it wasn't. My parent. We had one. <laughs> really funny. We had this one um, Kenny Rogers Greatest Hits eight track. Oh, <laughs> what you didn't have it? Brute and I had the Love and Spoonful on eight track. Oh, that was their, I think our one. What track. was their hit? What's Love and Spoonfuls? Um, I can't remember. I don't remember. And oh. I had the Eagles. Oh wow. Okay. Cool. Yeah, we had a lot of like Willie Nelson, Kenny Rogers, which was good. I grew up with that stuff, but we didn't listen to music in our in at our house. We only listened to it in the car. I'm fascinated by that. Like, and it was in, but we didn't talk in the car. Like I, just music in the car. Music in the car, but it was the same music all the uh-huh. time. But there wasn't. We never were infiltrated by any new, any top forty or anything. Um, so I, you know, obviously I got into the radio yeah. as a teenager and stuff. But, yeah, I don't know. I didn't, I wasn't, um, I didn't come from a family. I mean, I played music, though, which is kind of weird. What I did played you instru- play? I played, um, I, I played the flute. I played all kinds of woodwind instruments. But In I played, school? Yeah. And then I joined, my hometown is famous for fife and drum. Mm-hmm. Which is like the nerdiest thing ever. It's sort of like, um, it's not reenactment, <laughs> but it's close to it. Because um, we'd wear like uh, Revolutionary War uniforms and marched on the street playing like, you know, stuff. So at, there was a point where I knew probably over 200 Revolutionary War songs. Oh my goodness. So you, it was pretty rural where you grew up. Yeah, it's pretty rural. It's like four, a town of 4,000 people. That's pretty... Pretty small. Yeah. And that's our claim to fame is the is Fife and Drum. We have the largest muster, which is the gathering of Fife and Drum cores from around the country. Mm-hmm. And the largest one happens in my town. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. That's an interesting claim to fame. Yeah, it's um if you live there it's pretty cool. If you mm-hmm. don't it, it's probably it's sounds weird. ridiculous. Yeah. But um, you know, it's a, a really patriotic part of the country. Um, you know, Connecticut, it's just trapped between New York and Boston. Mm-hmm. And that's was sort of our identity. And Did you make a lot of art growing up? Yeah, I always made art. But I didn't, I didn't even go to a museum until I went to college. Because mm-hmm. my, my, no one in my family was into art. Um, we went to a lot of museums, but not art museums. So, you know, we went to like Fife US, drums. we went, no, we did, my parents weren't into Fife and Drum, but we do, we do have a museum in our town, though, a Fife and Drum Museum. But no, we went to places like US Mint, and oh, um, yeah. we went to a lot of um, breweries. <laughs> I've been to like every like Anheuser-Busch brewery and across the country. That's funny. So, and I still, I still like to do that, so. Yeah. That stuck. It's funny how like, how some of that, made. some of that stuff sticks and some, like my dad used to take us to Civil War sites. Oh, yeah. Oh, before, yeah. like, we, we would just that. drive Gettysburg south and, yes. down, and we went to all those Civil War sites, and there's pictures of me just, like, with this look on my face, like, God, this sucks. <laughs> and, like, he would just be yep. reading plaques. It's like, plaque you know? after fucking plaque. Yeah, plaque I know. After plaque. Yeah. Like, I'm supposed to care when I'm 10 years old about the Civil War. You know? I know. Yeah, and there weren't even any ghosts or anything. It was never, nothing ever happened. No. Yeah, I did a lot of that, too. We did a lot of learning trips, but it was, I mean, we did what my parents wanted to do. That's the big difference. What now I feel mean? like yeah. I do everything my kid wants to do. Like That's where we're going wrong, though, right? Because they're just, we're creating spoiled, I think, a spoiled Yeah, generation. no, we're going wrong in so many ways. 
I mean, I, I'm just assuming you're going wrong the ways I am too. Oh, I'm but on this, we're on the same boat. There's no I'm, way to get off that boat. It's just on its way. <laughs> they know stuff. So it's not like you can hide stuff from them. Plus, we live in New York. Yeah. They hear everything. They see everything. They know everything already. Yep. Plus, kids know everything about you. They know stuff about you you don't even know. It's so weird, it's, right? It's, it's cool. Yeah. It's cool. It's like it's an existential journey having a kid. It's, it really is. It, it changes your, your focus on everything. Totally. Weren't, weren't you socially talking about that comment of someone was saying, who was saying? Oh. That, um, oh, Marina Ambrovich. Yeah, that, she, she said that she made some dipshitty comment about how women ruin their careers if they have kids. Which anytime somebody who doesn't have kids says that, yeah. it's just like, <laughs> why? <laughs> it's and but, it's bad enough, but do women need women saying shit like that? You know no, what I mean? that, well, that's the bottom line. That's what pissed me off about it, um, is that it's the worst thing you can do is contribute to decades of ingrained sexism. Yeah, and Step it's back, simply right? not true. Just, one. There's absolutely no reason why how, why you can't have a family and balance a career. Yeah. Um, I found it easier to to balance a career after having a kid personally because I stopped doing a bunch of stuff that I didn't need to do anymore yeah. and focused on focus my time better. You value your time. You value for sure. your time and you value your you think more clearly. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And you, I agree. There's more more responsibility makes you more responsible in in terms of what you're putting out into the world. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I found it to be incredibly um, focusing. But yeah, that's a bummer that, but, you know, there's always going to be people who um, are sort of, I guess, bitter about things they didn't try. And some people don't have kids and they have great lives and some people have kids and it doesn't work out. It's just you got to do you. So yeah. yeah, that was a rough, that was rough to read. Yeah. Well, it's been... Not to get too deep into it, but it's been rough reading lately across the board. Yeah. But oh, we're yeah. going to we're gonna pull out of this fine, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're going to pull out of it great. Yes. I mean, well, I guess what's so frustrating is that it can, I think we know that it can be boiled down to that sort of the hangers on or people who feel threatened. Yeah. Um, in, most, in most cases, it can be, I think. And that's frustrating, too, to have to watch. I just... At a certain point, it's like, I just get tired of suffering fools on this on this subject. Yeah. And just think like we could be, we could be halfway to a paradigm shift, which is what we need. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's um. You know the, uh, art world and a lot of other industries are um, financially dependent on the current power structure. Yeah. So, try changing that. Um, the only way to change it is just to chip away. So, I don't know, I try not to say too much because I think it can be obnoxious too to constantly be politicizing everything. Right. But at the same time, if you don't, you, I feel like if I don't, sometimes when I say something, I feel like a lot of other people wanted to say it and didn't. Yeah. And there's some camaraderie there when you feel like, um, Yeah, I well, things are... I feel optimistic about that. Oh, hell yeah. No, it's going to be great. I feel great about it, and I feel like the perfect storm of the shit storm that needs to happen is happening, Yeah. and that the changes will be on the backs of that. 
and there's really no other way for stuff to happen yeah. without peeling back the layers and being uncomfortable with it for a while. So, yeah, I'm super optimistic. Well, as far as the art world's concerned, I mean, if in dealing with issues of gender in the art world, are things, do you feel like for you or for like your situation, like things have gotten better at all? Or do you think it's the same old, same old? Um, I think I've figured out a way to navigate it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I entered the art world with literally no clue that it, that it, there wasn't parody. Right. So I think slowly realizing um, what I have was painful, mm-hmm. but then um, I've just tried to find ways to kind of circumvent um, the system as it stands because there's, it's just, you know, it's pointless to beat your head against a wall. Right. And there's a lot of freedom that you can find in, you know, people not being, like when there's, when there's space for it, use it. Yeah. Like, you know, if there's market freedom, then make big shit. Just do it. Yeah. Um, and then like living well is the best revenge, I guess. Well, then that quote that I think I made a comment on it too, that the quote in the article where, who was it, 25? Which article? 25 women talking oh, about yeah. giving oh, yeah, advice yeah, yeah, to yeah. fellow yes, female that artists. Art, that article, right. Yeah, which I thought was amazing. That was cool. And instantly sent quoted. that to my students and said everyone should read every single word oh, of this. But right. I loved your comments in that oh, too. Thanks. Which I had, you know, thought of that specific. Do you remember exactly the quote that you gave? I, I said something about, um, God, I don't remember it exactly either, but I think that the things that people have pointed yeah. out in my personal experience, people that things that people have pointed out about my work mm-hmm. that used to um, kind of send me into a tailspin in a studio visit. You know, we all, we've all had that happen. I started spinning that and really thinking about how, um, how I react to other people's work. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, I, I really feel like usually people will point out the thing that makes them uncomfortable. And the thing that makes them uncomfortable is usually the most original thing about the work. Because the things that make you comfortable looking at art are things that you have a reference point for. And that's why so so many successful artists merely just just mine art history. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why, you know, some version of of Van Gogh or Matisse, God, is still kicking around all the time. It's like if if it looks like something or even if it's vaguely then people feel much more comfortable with it than when it doesn't. So yeah, take the thing that people are picking out and do it more, do it better, do it bigger. I mean, do it smart. Well, I was just talking to someone about that, how now though with, with all the pressure there is on people to be able to sustain themselves, whether it's galleries or whether it's like record labels or whatever, there's almost no space for experimentation yeah, or funny. for pushing the envelope. It's just like you've but there is. I mean, but then you have to, like, dissect that and, and think, is, there, is it that there's no space financially for it? Yeah. Or, I mean, I think there is some truth to the viral or bust theory, right. that it seems like now you either have to make it really big or not at all. Mm-hmm. But I, th- um, I just refuse to believe that, I, I believe that artists, artists are complicit. Like, we have control over what we make. Yeah. And the craziest thing about art is that we invent problems like 
oh, I have to do this thing now. I have to do this giant painting and I have to finish it. Why? Oh, I just have to have decided I need to make this thing. And now it, be, it becomes this whole, um, you know, conceptual problem that you have to solve. Yeah. And this is momentum. That's what, that's why it's so much fun doing it because you make the, you decide what the problem is. You decide what the solution is. And then invariably you're not satisfied. So you keep making more. Right. It's, it's, the best. Great. Well, thanks so much for letting me. Thanks in for having me. For chatting, and seeing the great show, and yeah, it was and, really uh, fun talking to you. Yeah, let's talk again soon. Okay. Thanks. Cool. cool.